Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to this episode of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies and resources for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Firstly, a quick announcement. I get a lot of people contacting me asking how they can work with me. So this is a little plug to let you know that I offer a range of services to vegan and plant-based business owners and entrepreneurs. From online training and group coaching to PR, content creation and copywriting services and one-on-one tailored individual private consultations. So if you're wanting help to promote or grow your vegan business, brand, product, service, book or other creative project, head over to veganbusinessmedia.com and click on the work with me menu link for more details. Now for the main part of the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Vegan Business Talk. I'm your host, Katrina Fox, and my guest today is Che Green. Now, Che is a 25-year market research veteran focused on sustainable and ethical consumerism, including plant-based foods. He's led research efforts for groups ranging from Fortune 50 companies to international nonprofits. He's also the co-founder of Faunalytics, which is a fabulous resource for animal advocates, providing them with data to be more effective. And he's also an active board member there as well. His work has involved understanding consumers' behavioral motivations and decision making and applying these insights to help companies expand their customer base and, of course, increase sales. His deep consumer research experience includes a range of quantitative, which is uh, surveys and experiments, qualitative, which is focus groups and interviews, and mixed method research. In 2021, he co-founded Moonshot Collaborative. I love that name. Uh, A research company that provides uh, consumer insights into the vegan and plant-based sector to help food innovators and disruptive brands grow. Welcome to the show, Che. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Very excited about what you're doing. I say you've got such a strong background in consumer research. Uh, As I mentioned, you do incredible stuff with Faunalytics. Um, If you don't know Faunalytics, I highly recommend everyone because business owners are activists, vegan business owners are activists. Do check that out because it's wonderful to have all that data, um, you know, if you're doing any kind of animal advocacy. Um, Now you're obviously bringing your skills to the vegan and plant-based sector. You co-founded Moonshot with David Ben who's another veteran of the vegan and plant-based space, which is awesome. Um, Can you give us, let's kick off with some of the numbers of, and I don't know whether you have this, but but as much as you can share, we hear a lot about, oh, the number of vegans is increasing. It's, you know, X, Y, Z, and uh, those numbers can be be quite mixed. And of course, as vegans, we get very excited about this. Um, What can you tell us about the numbers or figures of vegans versus, say, flexitarians, which are people who are veg curious, who, you know, eating more plant-based foods, but still eat animal foods, either within the US where you're based or even globally? 
No, it's a great question. It's one certainly that comes up pretty regularly, both among advocates as well as among business owners. And so it's, you know, globally, it's a little bit hard to peg down for a variety of reasons. It's difficult to ask the questions. So they're the same in every country. And you have cultural and economic differences that really drive eating, you know, and consumption patterns in those countries. But I'll use the U.S. as, as a bit of a proxy because we have reasonably good data there. And there's one organization, you'll see lots of numbers flying around. The ones I tend to rely on are, are probability based samples, which are really reflective of the population. And so in the US, we have an organization called the Gallup Organization, which has been doing polling for literally over 100 years. And vegetarianism is one of the topics, and veganism is one of the topics that they explore. And so last year, actually, excuse me, in mid-2018, they conducted a, a nationally representative sample and found that 5% of people reported that they were vegetarian, and another 3% reported that they were vegan. So about 8% total. What we do find out, not to, to deflate the bubble at all, but what we do find is that when you ask people something like the food frequency questionnaire, which goes into very much a lot of detail about what they eat, you find those numbers are slightly less, which is interesting. It may be disappointing from an advocacy perspective, but it's also interesting that more people identify with these diets than actually practice them on a full-time basis, which suggests to me that it's somewhat aspirational in nature and that people are sort of looking forward to these diets being part of their future and, and sort of aspiring to, to be become more vegetarian and vegan. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is that kind of thing of yeah, people like the idea of it, but then how much they actually implement it. Because I often say, like with vegans like myself, you know, who it's ethical vegan for the animals, mm. like, you know what I mean? I remember when I went vegan, I was back in the UK, and I remember standing in a, a gas station, you call it in America, a petrol station, and the Twixes were on stair, which is like this chocolatey caramel thing. And I remember standing there, you know, paying for my petrol and looking down thinking, oh my god I really want a tick I'm not long gone vegan this is 25 years ago thinking, oh, I really want a Twix I really want a Twix but then I saw in my mind what happens to the cows and you know all the cruelty so then I then yeah. the Twix became less attractive but most people don't do that like we're special do you know what I mean most people don't do it. they'll be like I want the Twix which is why of course we need more vegan uh, versions of all these things um so how does that compare um Che you know because even like you know there are small numbers but nevertheless you know given that there's a huge population in the US, it's still, you know, reasonable. There's a still reasonable numbers. Sure. Well, how do they compare with, say, I don't know, five, 10 years ago? A great question. Again, I, I would turn to, to Gallup uh, and they had the same question that they posed. Actually, it was six years prior to that. So I think it was 2012. Uh, and they found exactly the same numbers. They had shifted very slightly. Uh -huh. And so it was 6% vegetarian at the time and 2% vegan, again, 8% total. And so that doesn't capture the last couple of years where I think we may have seen some movement. And I know that, you know, out there, some vegans may be rolling their eyes because they've seen the numbers that show the growth rate. And I, I'm not sure that the two are mutually exclusive. I just think that there's a bit of a lag and that we haven't necessarily seen those reflected in national polling yet. And also to some extent that what's driving the increased consumption of vegan foods is those part-time vegetarians and vegans, those flexitarians that you mentioned just a moment ago. And what we find is that, and it's a little bit hard because every survey asks about flexitarian using different language, but what we find, at least in the U.S., is that flexitarians are about 25 to 40 percent of the population, which is a huge segment and obviously yeah. outnumbers the vegan and vegetarian segment 
to some degree. And so that's why you see the businesses so much focused on flexitarians and the age group specifically that are predominantly interested in flexitarianism, which is or part-time vegetarianism, which is my preferred term to, to imply that it's flexible to, to eat you know, some animal products is not always ideal. Um, but what you see is that that really is driving the market right now. And that's where the business focus is quite rightly so. Right, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Is I was curious about how that impact or what that means for uh, for vegan and plant based brands, even the ethical vegan and plant based brands. It's like, yes, of course, you want to get the vegans on board because we champion products and it's great to have us on board. But if you're nowadays, I think particularly, you know, 25 years ago, you could get away with it if you're an ethical vegan business targeting pretty much only vegans or vegetarians. Whereas now you do it, we need those bigger markets um, yeah. to to buy into our products. Fantastic. There's a, if I can just quick. There's a great quote from a U.S. auto industry executive. I think this was 10 or 15 years ago now. And they were talking about incorporating leather-free materials into cars. Excuse me. And they described vegans as being the center of the bullseye. And I think that that's an interesting analogy because the bullseye, the bullseye is quite small. But they want to shoot us. I didn't interpret it that way. That's an unfortunate way to look at it. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that the bullseye is obviously quite small in terms of the area that it represents on the dartboard. But if you uh, yes. orient your your products around sort of a vegan ethic and a vegan approach to sustainability, that's going to reach and appeal to a much broader market than just vegans and vegetarians. And I think that that's sort of the takeaway is that you can you can target and you can use vegans and vegetarians as your influencers, your early adopters, and sort of as your framework for how you design your products. But then you can also open that up to a mainstream audience audience and go, you know, those concentric circles out from the core vegan vegetarian space. Right. Now, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about some of the current trends, particularly in consumer buying habits. Anything that really kind of stands out, like maybe one or two key research data that you can share with us that vegan and plant-based brands really need to be aware of right now that are really important to take notice of? Yeah, a couple of things. Honestly, I think the one we just touched on is the the biggest one by far, which is that trend toward part-time vegetarianism and meat reduction and how people are swapping out those products. So what we find is that, you know, nine out of 10 consumers of plant-based products are not vegan or vegetarian. They're also eating conventional wow. animal products. And so that's a huge takeaway. It has lots of implications for the business sector. Uh, beyond that, you know, looking at a little bit at the category specific level, what we see is that there's large, large growth right now in plant-based seafood, plant-based eggs, and things like condiments and spreads. You also see that data reflected in something like GFI data and what they provide from retail scanner data. You know, those are relatively niche industries uh, compared to some like plant-based milk. And so you would expect sort of higher growth rates initially, but they're still, they're, they're higher even than you would expect necessarily for that. So you're seeing a lot of growth in those areas that I think people should be aware of. There's also growth in trying sort of non-traditional uh, meats. And so getting away from beef and chicken and fish into some of the other sort of more niche meat categories and there's new products coming on for that. And then the other one I wanted to touch on, which is one I don't have a clear answer on, it's really more of an opinion, which is the clean label phenomenon. And I I absolutely think that it's an important issue for a segment of the population, but I question whether or not that it can actually drive food, the food industry in that direction, whether that segment is large enough. Because food, certainly in the United States anyway, is still very much an indulgence for many people, and they prefer to, to seek out indulgent foods and not necessarily, I'm not sure how much the clean label will really drive that space in the future. Again, just a question, but I see that as a trend, and I'm not exactly sure uh, what the there there is. 
That's an interesting one, isn't it? it um, is. For sure, you know, because it, it's like there is that these like the, the kind of the whole food plant based people, some of whom are vegans, and then there's the vegans, and then there's the kind of just yeah regular meat eaters who don't want to give up the taste, the texture, yeah. the smell, the way it sizzles, and if that can be replicated, you don't really care necessarily kind of, you know, what's in it and not look, not exactly. necessarily looking for it, um, you know, as a health um, thing. But that's an interesting one. You just want to touch on where you said, um, and you, that's a high figure, like nine out of 10 people who are eating vegan and plant-based products are not actually vegan. You mentioned segments. It, is it mainly the millennials? Um, or how does that kind of break down in terms of demographics? Yeah, I wouldn't say mainly the millennials, but they are a driving force of it. If you if you look at you know consumption patterns by generation, so generation Z, Y, X, and so on, you see a, a very clear relationship and sort of a stepwise change. The generation Z, which is the younger folks, they are even though usually you get pretty small sample sizes for those, they're showing very strong interest in plant based foods. Millennials are certainly the largest segment right now, and you see it lower and lower as you go to older groups. So boomers and the silent, you know, majority are not eating a ton of plant-based foods. To some respect, in some respects, they actually show as much interest in them, uh, but it, because of health-related reasons predominantly, but right. that's not necessarily translating to big numbers in the market. And so, yes, you're seeing millennials largely drive it um, and younger consumers more generally. Interesting. Interesting. Any anything? I'm just curious because Gen X always gets forgotten, and I'm Gen X. Likewise. Likewise. <laughs> I guess we're kind of in the middle, aren't we? We're sort of somewhere in the middle of the boomers and the uh, the millennials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to be okay. Gen X is going to be a phrase here pretty soon. Like okay, yeah, boomer. Yeah. <laughs> um, now let's talk about what kind of data do vegan and plant-based companies need and how does that differ depending on the stage where the business is at? So whether it's somebody, for example, who hasn't even started their business, but they're thinking about it, maybe they've got an idea for a product or a startup that's kind of, you know, just kind of got going or an established legacy brand. Um, what kind of data do they need and depending on what stage they're at? That's a great question. So if, if a company or a, even an individual is just at the idea stage and they want to sort of vet the idea and see if there's a market for their products, that's obviously a great place to do some research. And it's one of the services that we offer through Moonshot Collaborative. And what you would do is you start off by some metric being an interest to try or a willingness to buy or maybe a willingness to pay X price for that. And you would conduct a, a study and see how many people then you know, say that they're willing to try. So that's a, an interesting data point by itself, can give you a rough size of your overall market. But then you can also look at the segments in terms of who, where does that product resonate with the most? Does it resonate more with women or men? Does it resonate more with the millennials or with older age groups? And you can use that information then to also create your audience targeting. And so, you know, it's much like a, a nonprofit who thinks that they want to change the world and their messages for everybody. A small business can't market to everybody. And so you have to choose specific target markets, and that's where the research can come in. So it'll tell you not only the overall size of the market, but for whom that product or that category idea resonates the most. So that's if you're starting sort of white space and starting very fresh, that's where that's where I would go. 
If you're a little bit further along and you have a specific product idea or you're ready to go to market, something along those lines, I would imagine the research would be better focused on branding and packaging because that's a really critical point in terms of if you're a retail customer, you're looking for retail customers, standing out in terms of the packaging, being able to get shelf space, all of that is crucial. And so I, I, I know a lot of companies sort of choose their packaging based on existing best practices, um, and that can work, but also getting consumer feedback can be quite essential if you're choosing between, say, different package designs. And you mentioned qualitative and quantitative research earlier, so you could use both of those. You could use qualitative research to, to look at what are the elements that sort of seem best or worst of your package designs, and then quantitative research to choose between two or three and see which one leads to more purchase intent. And so that's an example if you're sort of ready to go to market with a product. And just one more, if you're you know if you're a more established company, if you're the a Tofurky of the world or something like that, you're probably looking at things like brand tracking. So what do consumers think of your brand and getting that also by segment, tracking that over time, and then maybe looking into competitive research as well. Lovely. Brilliant. That's really good. Thank you for breaking that down because I often think sometimes companies are not quite sure they kind of they know about consumer research but they're not kind of quite sure how it can specifically apply to them um, particularly if they're smaller uh, brands so and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that but um obviously consumer research can be expensive again you know for, particularly for, for smaller business owners um can you talk to us about it particularly when you're dealing with large numbers of people so I'd love you to kind of expand on and I know you've written a blog post about this on on the Moonshot Collaborative website which is great what kind of sample size do you need to get a good result from consumer research? Good question. Very good question. And just before I, I touch on specific sample sizes, the question about cost, you, you're right. Consumer research can actually cost quite a bit. I mean, our goal at Moonshot Collaborative is to make it more accessible and affordable for companies in this space, but it doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's hundreds of dollars. It's often usually thousands of dollars. And so the question is how to use it judiciously and in the right scenarios. You know, the, the question I often pose to a business owner is what if you end up choosing completely the wrong packaging or you're spending your marketing dollars on exactly the wrong audience for your product. You know, those are business decisions that have costs to them. And in some cases, research will actually be the cheaper option rather than making or, or potentially making some of those mistakes. But that aside, I do know that research is, is a challenge to budget for for many companies. And so you don't want to invest in larger sample sizes than you really need. And so for a survey, we often recommend 800 to 1,000 people for a quantitative survey looking at things like, you know, product innovation or capturing the size of a market or things like that. And that gets you a good uh, basis from which to have confidence in the results. But what why the caveats I would say is that that will be, you will need more sample size if you need to look at specific segments. So for instance, if you really needed to compare white people versus African-American people in the United States, then you would need enough African-American people in your sample in order to be able to make those comparisons. And so you might have to increase sample for specific segments. And so, but generally speaking, we would say 800 to 1,000 for a survey. I wouldn't recommend going below maybe three or 400 as a minimum. Um, and that's only if you're looking at top line results and not 
comparing segments. When you look at qualitative research, it's a little bit more subjective. Uh, if you're doing focus groups, you basically never want to rely on just one focus group. I myself prefer slightly smaller focus groups for a more intimate environment. So that's five to eight people or so, but you would want to do at least two focus groups um, and with five to eight people or so in them. If you're doing individual interviews, we tend to aim for at least 25 or 30 and generally no more than 50 because uh, you start to see the same themes just sort of come up and up as you interview more people. Um, so those are the sample sizes we typically recommend, but of course it does vary by project. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for explaining that. So you mentioned the costs. Um, can you give us an example, like some of the ballpark costs? I know you kind of said generally kind of in the thousands um, of say you were going to survey a thousand people in tr with traditional um, consumer research. Like what could like those ballpark figures be? Sure, sure. And so for a survey, let's again, I'll use the sort of US as a basis, but this is roughly comparable in most countries. Um, if, if you did a survey of a thousand people, and let's say it was a three to four minute survey, which would be allow you to ask maybe 10 or 12 questions, um, you're looking at probably five or 6,000 all told. And that includes the survey hosting, the design, and, and the analysis. And that's a traditional cost. Now, many companies will charge more than that. And, and again, like I said in the previous question, if you're looking at specific segments, you need to oversample on African-Americans, for instance, or you need a larger sample, obviously, those numbers change. Um, they also can change if you're doing like incorporating some open-ended questions, which require some additional analysis uh, and some additional skill to, to do that analysis. But five to 6,000 is, is a good ballpark. That Moonshot Collaborative, honestly, many of our custom projects will be roughly in the same range. But what we've done is we've created a mechanism that allows companies to get in at sort of an entry level cost. And so we do a, pardon me for bouncing my laptop, yeah. <laughs> we, we do a, a survey every month that is a shared client study. And so we, we combine questions from multiple clients, obviously keeping everything proprietary and just for that one client, but we're able to then reduce the cost for each individual. And so what we're doing is actually right now during our introductory period, you can buy a question for $1,000. You can, once the introductory period is over, that'll be $1,250, but it's still an entry level cost that would allow you to then size that market or you know get critical feedback on something. And what we do in a, a, a not sell us too much after this, but what we do is we have very rich profiles of everybody that we're surveying. So we have 70 different profile attributes for these folks, ranging from everything from their motivations and barriers to buying plant-based to of course, all their demographic information. And so that's available to people who purchase a question from us and they can get that additional information and use that for segmentation, use that for targeting and what have you. And so that's sort of our entry level, um, the monthly client surveys, our entry level approach to providing not only affordable, but also pretty rich information based on the, the information that we can append to your survey results. So that's our, our approach to sort of reducing the cost for this space, because as, as I think you noted earlier on, both David Benzikin and I, the, my co-founder and I, are very mission-driven in this space. We've been operating in this space for a long time, and our goal really is to help the space succeed, not necessarily become rich doing so. I love that. Now, thank you for explaining that. And and I think it's it's fantastic that you're able to offer this service. It's very unique. Uh, and, and the fact that you've got people like yourselves behind it who genuinely want the sector to succeed, um, I think is, is really great. Um, I'm curious. So you said you've got all these rich profiles, you've got this data, and I'd love to know this. So it's maybe a little bit of the secret sauce, but like, where do you 
find all these people because like you know sometimes when I hear about surveys I, I never get called for, to take part in any survey well very very rarely I think I got called once and it was something really random that wasn't that interesting so I did say no but I would I never get called to do surveys so I'm just curious can you give us a little peek behind the curtain like where do you find these people <laughs> I also very rarely get called to do surveys, so, and, and that's something I've heard before. And I, I have never done the math to figure it out, but the probability of any of us, you know, being asked to take surveys is pretty low. So I wouldn't use that as a as a point of concern. Uh, I do think, you know, what we did for ours is we worked with a, a, another panel company to source our folks, and we pre-screened them for both quality and to make sure that they fit our profile, which are people who had purchased plant-based foods in the past year. We also do things. So like quality contracts, like we do with something called an attention check to make sure people are paying attention when they go through the survey, et cetera, for different quality controls. We were very fortunate that we worked with literally the largest panel company in the world. They had over 30, I think, million different panelists for us to source from. Yeah. And so it was a very diverse and very large pool of people to draw from. And we were able to, again, to sort of screen them to match our profile and, and to make sure that they're re meeting a certain quality bar. That's for our proprietary panel. And that's where we, we draw our monthly client surveys from. When we're working on individual projects that may go outside of our panel, that's, you know, that then becomes the onus is on us to figure out a high quality partner. If we're working in China or we're working in India, we might partner with somebody like a YouGov who has a local presence and does high quality work there, for instance. And so the, the sourcing for our panel is sort of one thing and, and highly vetted and we're very confident in the quality of that panel. When, for those ad hoc projects, it would depend who we're working with as a local partner. But you know, one of the things that we, we worry about is you know, when people think about bias, they often think about how questions are written and how yes. they're interpreted. But you can introduce just as much, if not much more bias by who you're surveying or who responds to your survey in particular. And so you have to be very careful and cautious that you're not surveying either the wrong population or an inherently skewed audience. So is it possible like when you're doing these surveys, like are you just are you trying to kind of, you know, like when you like you can do certain kinds of research where you almost kind of you've got the outcome or you've got a bit of an outcome you want and then you tweak the questions to try and get towards that result. So how does that work with consumer research? Do you like just try to keep the questions as open as possible without influencing the responses? The latter, the latter. And the same was true in my nonprofit work at Fontalytics. You know, the, if, our goal really is to get the real answer or as real as close as we can get to the real answer, given survey limitations and what they are. And so we we, we don't do push polling. Um, we don't do any research that has an outcome that's predetermined or that it's sought after. We really are trying to find sort of the true consumer feedback, whether it's quantitative or qualitative on the underlying topic. Got it. Lovely. And you mentioned um, you have monthly clients. So when you said like someone can purchase, say, a question for from you for like a thousand dollars or twelve fifty, like do they like purchase it as a one off and then they get the data or how long do, do they need to kind of keep purchasing it over a period of time? And what's the minimum kind of time they would need to to get good results from you? Good question. Yeah. And it's it's up to them. So it's as little as one question. Um, okay. and, and we would introduce that into, we, we run our surveys generally around mid-month and it takes about a week or so to get the results. And that actually is a, like a PDF report that would include their question. It would include a breakdown for any of the segments that they're interested in the most. And then of course, a, an Excel file with the detailed results if they wanted to go into analysis on their own end. 
Fantastic, fantastic. And then do you then make any recommendations or is it just more of the analysis and then they might hire someone to kind of say, okay, we've got this data, now what do we do with it? We certainly try to bridge that gap. And so we're not providing detailed recommendations unless the client has requested that and and that's sort of an add-on service that we can provide. We're also looking at, David and I, we're not there yet, but we're pulling together a collection of experts, not necessarily research experts, but things like food buyers and food brokers and folks that have that kind of expertise to complement and sort of help interpret some of the data for clients. And so I don't think that most clients would have to go and hire another person for interpretation, but they may, maybe some combination of their internal expertise and our expertise making sense of those results. Nice. Got it. Got it. Um, I think you might have answered this. You might have touched on it. Are you working solely like within the US as in companies who are based in the US or companies who are looking to sell within the US or are you completely global, able to provide uh, global consumer insights? Honestly, it's a little bit of a hybrid. So we're capable of doing research in pretty much any country in the United States, but we would just full disclosure, we would be working with a local partner on that for sourcing respondents and doing things like translations. So we can absolutely facilitate that research. Where our core competency is, which which is the panel itself, it is U.S.-based. So the vast majority of our panelists, we started off with a U.S. focus. We have to, you know, there has to be a certain level of interest in these other countries before we're able to expand to them, but we are. And so we're looking at Europe, for instance, we're obviously looking at China as potential Mm -hmm. roles to expand the panel in the future. But in the short term, we can work with local, local data collection partners to conduct a study in just about any country. Wonderful. And are you mainly food focused or can you cover fashion, beauty, other types of products? We can. And in fact, we've had some conversations with folks that are in you know, the cruelty-free cosmetic space and household product space, a little bit in the alternative material space. So we're very well positioned to help those folks. You know, David and I have a little bit more experience uh, specifically in the plant-based food space. So that's part of what why we're, we're focusing on that to some extent. Uh, plus, that's obviously where we can have a huge impact for animals, the planet, and human health, probably larger than most other sectors. So that's definitely a focus for us, but we're, we're also quite willing. To, to work on other sort of animal ethical spaces as well as sustainable spaces. Wonderful, wonderful. And I was just thinking that because I interviewed um, Stephanie Downs from the Material Innovation Initiative, um, who are doing obviously incredible things in the fashion space. And we're finally seeing some movement there, you know, with car manufacturers, you know, and, uh, you know, luxury, you know, handbag, all of these kind of really starting finally to embrace animal free materials, which is really exciting. So that's, yeah, that's no, wonderful. No. I've known Stephanie for many years. I love what doing. Oh, they're amazing, aren't they? Absolutely incredible. I love that. So just before we kind of um, wrap up, what I'd love to ask you is, could you give us an example? So we've talked quite generically here about, you know, the need for this kind of consumer research. And obviously it can be used to increase, um, you know, the customers and, and sales. Anything, could you perhaps give an actual concrete example? And I know Moonshot is, is obviously quite new. So either from Moonshot or perhaps something that you've done in, in the past where you've got an example of you don't need to name the company obviously but just a concrete example of a business that did some consumer research and actively saw uh you know an increase in sales or some benefit to their business just to give people a real clear idea because I know when I speak to a lot of vegan business owners and entrepreneurs they they're not quite sure you know how do they justify paying for customer research so I'd love it if you could just perhaps give a little bit of a concrete example Sure, sure. I, I can give 
two, one from Moonshot and one from my time before Moonshot. Uh, so one of the clients that we've worked with through Moonshot Collaborative, and in fact, one of our the customers of our monthly survey, was exploring a completely new space. So uh, an entirely new type of, of meat that for which there is no plant-based analog right now. And I won't go into to the details because that might Ooh, tip off exciting. who it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what they were doing is they, they yeah. submitted a question with us to gauge consumer interest and their willingness to try this product if it were available in their local restaurants and grocers. And again, this is similar to what I described earlier. So they were able to get that top line general sense of interest from consumers to validate their approach. And I do think that they got some pretty good validation from the survey. And then we were also able to provide those segments. So are men or women more interested in this plant-based product? Mm -hmm. Are people of different age groups more interested in this plant-based product? And that was really useful for them to not only gauge overall sentiment toward the idea, but then also think about how they might target, especially with their initial and limited marketing efforts as they roll as they go to market. So that's that's one example. You know, they're not to market yet, so I don't have any sales data, uh, and I won't have sales data for the second example either. But it was a company, a much bigger company, one that pretty much every plant-based consumer would have heard of. And I worked with them specifically on they had a, a basket of potential products that they were rolling out, and these were they're specifically moving into more um, ethnic cuisines, so non-U.S. based cuisines that they thought would resonate specifically with a millennial audience that's a little bit more worldly in their food choices. And so what we did is we did sort of a combined general population survey, but then we also oversampled on the millennial audience so that we'd have a, enough of those folks to really call out separately. And our goal was to go through this list of products and see which ones they would be most interested in trying and buying. And I do know that this company, uh, of that list, they, they took the survey results, they focused on those that small maybe three or four products that really rose to the top for them and i do know that those products have been successful i don't have information on their specific sales but i know that the company was quite happy with the research and that it, it both affirmed some of their internal assumptions and also helped them sort of choose between some that were really sort of they were on the fence about I love that. Thank you for explaining that. I think that really makes a lot of sense. Like, and particularly, right. you know, if you haven't started a business or you have and you're looking to add new products just because you think it's or you and your team think it's a good idea. Because I know some vegan business owners, you know, they'll start a business because they think, oh, well, I want that. I think it's missing. Therefore, everyone else will want it. And that's not necessarily the case. So I think that's a really great example of, of how consumer research, genuine consumer research, you know, talking to real people, not just your friends and your family who are also probably going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, do it. It. Um, exactly. So I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Have you got any um, predictions? Like we touched on at the beginning of our, our, our interview, um, Che, about some of the data that's coming out. Like you mentioned that that's really stuck in my mind now. The nine out of 10 people who eat vegan and plant-based foods are not, don't necessarily identify as vegan or vegetarian. Um, any views on your predictions in terms of the because we're seeing massive growth in the the vegan and plant-based sector you know with meats dairies you know other types of products any predictions you'd like to share with us uh, more of the same. I, I just do not see this slowing down. You know, I, like you, a long time vegan. I still remember the days when I was making veggie burgers from a powdered mix that you buy in a box <laughs> and you mix at home with water. It was as good as it sounds, you know? And so you know, the advent of Beyond and Impossible for me has already been revolutionary, but I just, we're going to see it continue. And, and things like the Impossible Burgers pushed for price parity, I think is really going to be yeah. a game changer because, you know, we did a, a 
a recent study on price parity and, and price premiums and what people are willing to pay. And it turns out that the vast majority of plant-based buyers are willing to pay a premium, but it's a tiny premium. And so right now, as we see, you know, when we're 50% or maybe 100% more expensive than the conventional meat and dairy products, there's some hesitation. You really have to get over that hump for a lot of consumers. As we bring, as we get to scale and bring that price down, I think we're going to see another huge bump in interest in plant-based foods because um, all of the other reasons are there. The ethical reasons are there. The health reasons are there. The sustainability and environmental reasons are there. So as we're getting the taste down. The taste has, you know, we're a long way from the powdered veggie burger in a box. And so the taste has improved dramatically. It's that price that I think now is going to really drive a lot more people to the space once we get there. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. It's like hitting like people who are interested, you know, whether it's clean or healthier or plant based or more sustainable, willing to pay. It's interesting you say they're willing to pay a premium, but not a massive premium. But we really want to be hitting those mass markets, which is what I love the work that yeah, the impossible are doing. Eat Just, I think, are doing something similar as well, like just trying to, you know, if, if you give someone the option, it's the same price. And then you've got all these other, you know, taste just as delicious. I'm totally with you on that. I remember um, I've only just like 25 years vegan. I've only just been able recently to have pizza again, like from Pizza Hut, you know, with actual vegan cheese on it, just because I can, you know. Um, it's little things like but hitting that mass market so that, you know, the taste is there. All those other boxes are ticked and there's these extra benefits um, and it costs the same. It makes it a no brainer. So uh, I love that you shared Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Brilliant. So just finally, um, I know you've only just kicked off your launching and it's uh, amazing, um, but anything you'd like to say about any future plans or, or vision that you've got for, for Moonshot Collaborative? Yeah, just more of the same. You know, our goal it really is to make, like I said earlier, research accessible and affordable to plant-based and sustainable companies. And we're doing that through these sort of monthly surveys as well as reduced cost custom surveys. We're looking at that expert council that I mentioned earlier and bringing in non-research expertise that will expertise that will help these companies get to market. And we're looking at a few other tools and methods similar to those. What we may, for instance, have is sort of turnkey offerings for specific scenarios, like if you're trying to choose between two or three package designs, we have this service for you. So we're looking at developing those right now as well. But predominantly, we just want to be a service and a resource to this space so that we can help these products go mainstream. I love that. Wonderful. I think you've explained it beautifully. I think just how important consumer research is and the fact that you've made it affordable for some of the smaller or some of the brands that are getting started, I think is absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much, um, Che. And I highly recommend uh, people do check out Moonshot Collaborative. The website is moonshotcollaborative.com um, and also Faunalytics, um, I, I think as well, which are, are kind of complementary, but, you know, if you're also doing um, activism. If you're watching this episode, you can see those links at the bottom of the screen and if you're listening to the podcast episode those links are available on the show notes page thank you again shay it's been a real pleasure speaking with you the pleasure is mine thank you katrina so that's it for this episode of vegan business talk i hope you enjoyed it and found it useful if you like the show, please give it a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on as it helps to get it seen by more people. There are more free resources on the veganbusinessmedia.com website to help you in your quest to build and sustain a successful business. 
And if you'd like to work with me personally on promoting and growing your vegan business or brand, you'll find details on how to do this on the website at veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the Work With Me menu link. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 